Welcome to the Full English Podcast, the show that examines who we are according to what we eat. Regular listeners will know that we usually take a topic or a question and make an episode on that. But this episode is a bit different. It's one of many episodes to come in which I interview one person in depth. In this case, I'm speaking to Professor Diane Perkis, whose book, English Food, A People's History, is out this month. Diane and I talk in detail about what English food is, how and when English food became bland, why Elizabeth David is a food snob, why we fear technological innovation in our food, and more generally, how what we eat in England is so deeply interwoven with our social class. If you enjoy this show, please share it. Over the next year, we want to grow this podcast, and I really need your help with that. We're in the process of making episodes on why we love Greg's, on how rising food prices influences our politics and how Weatherspoons took over our cities and towns, with loads more shows planned for the new year. So if you can, please give this episode a share. I'm going to be sending a free copy of Diane's brilliant book to a listener who tags The Full English in a post about this show. You can find The Full English on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter at fullengpod. Just tag us in a post about this show and I'll pick someone at random to send the book to by the end of this month. And if you really love the show, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash full English and become a subscriber for just £3 a month. And that helps us pay for everything that's involved in making this show. I'm Lewis Bassett. Sound design and additional editing is as always from the brilliant Forest DLG. I hope you enjoy the interview. Diane, thank you so much for joining me on the Full English Podcast. Oh, thank you for asking me. Um, let's get into it. So um, your book that comes out this month is called English Food, A People's History. I want to break down that title. So let's start with the Englishness and mm-hmm. the food. So why England? Mm-hmm. And maybe you can also tell me why English food specifically, given that your research has not been typically in the past on food. English because I think... It's well understood in this country now, perhaps in the light of the burgeoning Scottish independence movement and devolution, that England is, among other things, a felt ethnicity, part of people's identity. And that's really reflected in what we eat, because everything that we eat reflects who we think we are. If I'd wanted to add in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland those would really have had to be separate parts of the book anyway because there are huge divergences in their food cultures. And, for example, I would have loved to write about the Scottish Highland diet, which may be one of the most brilliant diets ever created, where you're you're mixing huge helpings of beef very rarely with oats on a daily basis. And that's why Highland regiments feature such tall people. Well, that's great, but it's nothing like what's happening down south. And so I thought it would just be even bigger <laughs> than it is now. It's it's already a huge book and my editor kind of winced. Um, <laughs> so I think if I'd added in three more nations, it would have been unworkable. As for why food, I, I always think all my research connects up brilliantly, but other people don't quite see it. I actually got interested in food through working on witchcraft originally. And there are some stories about witchcraft 
in the book that bear that out. It turns out, for instance, that English witches don't gather to have an incredibly sexy Sabbath with Satan. They actually gather to eat. Um, what happens when you go to a magical place in England is typically food. So it just got me thinking about the paradox that people don't know us as an especially foodie nation, but it's somehow so central to our mythologies. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to kind of delve into that. And I did a bit of work on it in relation to food shortages in the Civil War as well, which really alerted me to the way that food shortages and food needs actually shape historical events, that an awful lot of our history um, is about people hunting for a decent meal. Mm. Um, so that led me to want to research it. And this I then did. <laughs> I'm glad you did because it's a it's a really great book. Thank you. Um, I mean, you're 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 the professor of history here. Would you say that food is generally overlooked in in historical accounts of, of England? I'd say that food is terribly overlooked in comparison with virtually everything else. And and now I'm going to say it's overlooked in comparison with other matters of the body, like sex. We now understand that sexuality and orientation is a huge part of people's identity, but we don't yet factor food in. That said, I mean, there's been some terrific work, especially in the past 25 years or so, on food and empire, thinking of yeah, popular books like Lizzie Collingham's books. Um, but I think we still don't think enough about the role that food plays and access to food plays in our class system, in our system of self-identity, the way that every single day involves making food and, and isn't, it isn't avoidable. You can't stop doing it. Um, so I think that means it should be a more pressing historical and probably socio-political concern than mm. it tends to be. And the way that you express that takes us quite nicely to the second part of your title, The People's History. Mm. Because, as you say, eating is something that no one can avoid. And therefore, we all take part um, yeah. in, in, this, in this creation of, at least in, in your terms now, um, a national culture. Mm -hmm. But maybe you could tell me a bit more about why you chose to call this book a people's history and in what way the book exactly is a people's history. Well, without being too rude, the vast majority of food history looks only at the elite. And that's understandable. The elite in all areas produce more sources. So if you're just going by where the bulk of evidence lies, you're going to be looking at what nobles at or what the greater gentry at. But in a way, that's also ultimately boring because what you're then doing is just tracking elite fashion changes. Mm. I was more interested in larger questions of how, for instance, how the Little Ice Age affects everybody, the way that suddenly what had been quite a productive and manageable system of agriculture goes into deep crisis. And the way that that, in turn, affects the class structure and people's religious beliefs even and what people's sort of internal norm is for dinner. So also just in my lifetime thinking about the massive changes that have occurred in food culture mm. and how that's happened and why that's happened. Mm. And so one of the things that's really on my mind is that English food has always been not about the food that you can easily grow locally, but rather about imports. 
Surely we're one of the only nations on the planet where our national drink comes from a plant that won't even grow here, tea, and is flavoured with another plant that won't grow here either, sugar. I mean, admittedly, you can grow sugar beets, but they don't happen until the 19th century, contrary to popular belief. It's all cane sugar in the Middle Ages. So there's something extraordinary about our permeability, our openness to the novel and the new that I find compelling. And that's more a feature of people below the elite, oddly, than it is of the elite themselves. That actually reminds me of uh, in the first episode of The Full English where I interview David Edgerton, who is famous for having this thesis that there was no such thing as a Britain or a United Kingdom really prior, prior to the Second World War. And, mm -hmm. and, and he, he makes that really obvious by looking at our food imports. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Perfectly accurate. And another reason why it's English food and not British food, because in a way, British food, very much of food history turns out to be made of myths. It's made of what we want to be the case rather than what actually is the case. And this idea that at some point there were sort of happy peasants who, when they laid off dancing around maples, rushed off to make their own bread from whole grains and, and thus were brilliantly nourished is just, it's just rubbish. You know, I can't say what rubbish it is. Um, and I'm also just fascinated to note that, I mean, we're dealing at the moment as a nation with a fuel crisis and, and a real issue around whether people can heat their homes, whether people can afford to put the oven on for long enough to roast a Christmas turkey. That is so typical of English food history, where the big crisis has often been around fuel mm. rather than around food itself. Mm. That's super interesting. I mean, you, you've given already two characteristics of English food, I suppose. Um, and I notice in your book that there's not a point at which you say English food is X. And, and maybe that's the right thing to do. Um, and, and, you know, a book of 500 pages, you're not going to get distilled uh, a statement like that. But nevertheless, I'm always asked, ask what do you mean by English food and what is English food? And I'm always like, I mean, how do you even approach that question? You can name a bunch of dishes. Um, you can exactly. name some characteristics. I, I, just like methodologically, how, how, how do you see yourself as answering that question? In terms of my methodology, I actually didn't set out to answer that question. Mm. I set out to find out what I could about... What, both what people were eating and the constraints under which they were choosing or preparing it. Mm. In that way, I would have said that if English food had a characteristic menu, it's going to be typified by an elite menu and not a menu available to ordinary people. So I'm going to cite roast beef, which mm -hmm. doesn't get a chapter in the book, much to the annoyance of the Times reviewer. <laughs> And that's because roast beef was only ever available to a tiny minority of people. Mm. Our national meat, insofar as we have one, is probably pork because that was available to everyone and more recently chicken as well. So my simple story would be if I was asked to typify an age-long English dish, it would be something involving vegetables, pork meat and a grain, mm -hmm. probably not wheat, mm. barley, uh, rye. Um, so you could either have envisaged that as pottage mm. from the Middle Ages. You can envisage that as a stir fry with a slice of toast from the 21st century. But the constituent ingredients will be similar. And it's a highly intelligent way to eat because the fat 
in the pork helps you absorb the vitamins from the vegetables. The chef in me is thinking about all sorts of uh, recipes you can make with those elements and then therefore crown a, an English dish. Um, and I it's mean, not light years away from a pie either. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of people, when asked to define English food, will use the word bland. Yeah, um, they will. You, you touch on this several times in your book. Um, there's, there's a point at which you, you describe the turn... I mean, maybe this applies to elite cooking less than people's mm. cookery, but mm. the turn from heavily spiced food yeah. to something that's much more bland. Yeah. Could, could you describe kind of when and why that, that, that change took place? It's part of the biggest change that happens in our food culture, which happens short story after the restoration, mm -hmm. where people go from having beer and a slice of meat or cheese at 10 in the morning and that's breakfast to having coffee, chocolate, and a puffy brioche-like pastry earlier in the morning, and that's breakfast. At that point, there's a sudden, probably imported enthusiasm for dishes that involve dairy as their main flavor. Mm -hmm. So people start making sauces with cream and butter. To make that happen, they install some cows in Hyde Park because before refrigeration, dairy preservation is a problem. And where are we now, date-wise, roughly? We're 1670-ish, I'm going to say, is kind of the cusp of it. You can track it happening through Pepys' diary, for example, as he adventurously tries all the new hot beverages and sends people out like Miranda Priestley in The Devil Wears Prada to get him fresh cups of hot chocolate, hot tea, hot wigs, which is the bun, um, hot coffee. So that happens. And at that point, what starts to disappear, and it happens quite fast, sort of almost head-spinningly fast, is the staple... 15th century banquet stuff, which is very heavily, strongly tasting game, including game of the sea, with tons of spices. And it's all on the table at once, like a smorgasbord, and you load up your plate with a slice of porpoise. And on top of that, you don't really have a plate, you have a, a plate made of bread. And, and, and on top of that, you pile the exciting thing that's a bit like bastilla um, with some yummy spicing and lots of sugar in it to make it crispy. Um, and you eat it all at once. So that, that stops happening. And what happens instead is these individually portioned dishes, which are much blander. Part of it is that there are growing problems with imports anyway, um, mainly because of the government's wish to tax them. Part of it is the constant naval wars in which we're engaged mostly with the Dutch, later with the French as well. Part of it is that as people have increasingly taken to eating sugar, their teeth get worse. And so they fancy things that are less tooth stressful. If you've ever had a hole in your tooth, and eaten very hot curry, it's actually pretty challenging. Um, so lots of things happening at once, but it leads to a fairly abrupt change of taste. I wouldn't call that food bland, though. I would call that food something like creamy mm -hmm. or luscious mm -hmm. and often sweet as a criterion, and we still have those criteria in place. That's why people like ice cream. It's why they like cake. They are some really good uh, theories or factors in this 
transition. But you started with the Reformation, and I'm interested yeah. in that. Um, did religion play a role in, in this kind of? I mean, you can yeah. you can you can conceive of the idea that Puritanism might have dictated having a more dour diet. Well, just in a really simple way, as as someone who knows about beer, you'll immediately understand that Puritanism had a terribly depressing effect on ale. Um, I mean, I love that in the past you raised money for the local church not with a cake sale or a bake sale, but with alewives making ale um, and so people would go along and buy ale in barrels to help the church repair its spire or whatever it was. Mm. Obviously that was anathema to Puritans and because cakes, typically waffles often went with that kind of event cakes were bad too so it came about then that any food that you didn't need that you were eating just because it tasted nice mm. was bad. Mm. And we, to some extent, still have that view that you know, to sit down and eat a whole tray of brownies at once is somehow dreadful in a way that somehow drinking a bottle of Chateau Petrus isn't, curiously. Um, and, and we have this sort of anxious, horrified response to gluttony still, as, as a country, and it often sort of takes the form of worries about obesity, which can be perfectly legitimate worries about health, but which can also be much less legitimate, just horror at the idea of somebody eating a lot. Mm, food and guilt. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah a huge absolutely. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So in that way, um, and in all kinds of other ways as well, we're still also feeling the loss of the medieval festive calendar, which was basically a series of joyful engagements with local bake types, mm. um, which actually led to lots of the varieties of regional cake, like Banbury cakes or Eccles cakes, that we still kind of just about know about today. Christmas is the last vestige of this with the mince pie. Um, and, of course, Puritans hated Christmas and did their very best to ban it um, and were horrified by the thought of eating mince pies because they symbolised Christ in the manger and that made it even worse. Mm. I would have thought supermarkets have a lot to answer for in terms of the homogenization of British food, or English Definitely food. the case with fruit. Right. Um, but you're kind of making a case for... <laughs> the Reformation having an equally important impact. Is that fair yeah, to say? Absolutely right, yeah. It, it's wrong to say that everything was perfect till supermarkets came along and ruined it. Mm. It's not that simple, unfortunately. Arguably, yeah, Puritans deliberately tried to crush medieval food culture because they correlated it with the Catholicism that they were trying to exterminate, mm. um, in the most literal sense, actually. Um, the fact that a lot of medieval food tastes were shaped by trade with Spain, so the enthusiasm for citrus fruits and, and very heady Moroccan-style spices, those things for Puritans meant that you were pro-Spanish. So that was bad. Mm. We don't want people to be pro-Spanish. We want them to eat the kind of food that we have decided is plain food. And that's still a thing. A lot of food snobbery is still about that. A lot of food snobbery is still about we don't want imported things. We want something perfectly local. It strikes me that as we enter the 20th century, and in the two centuries prior to that, I suppose, as well, there was always a kind of great wrestling with France, obviously, mm. and with French food. And Absolutely. the elite could never place itself as uh, the elite was never homogeneously for or against it there was like divisions within the elite and it was it was seemed like an important point to be you know for plain english fare roast beef and so on 
or for your fricassees from France. And, and, and that yeah, seems... Yeah, kickshaws. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and that also, uh, this is a bit of a caricature, but there's a kind of food that I describe in the book as sort of men's club food, yeah. which is still available in places like Scots. Mm. Um, and it, it's a certain kind of food. It, it centres on available games. So the 12th of August is a big deal because the first grouse arrive. It's very elite. Mm. But it's actually cooked and served very much the way it would have been in the 18th century. Early asparagus is also a thing in exactly this kind of world. Conversely, you have, I guess, a more feminized space centering on home dinner parties and maybe nowadays also on upmarket restaurants with a Michelin star to their name, mm -hmm. which is still influenced really by Escoffier mm -hmm. and, and by the idea of haute cuisine. Mm -hmm. and, and Virginia Woolf sent her home cook off to learn haute cuisine so that she could produce that kind of food for dinner parties. And of course, what it leads to, and I really looked into that, is exactly the kind of food that French people despise when they come to England, because it's sort of a bad parody of yeah. what French haute cuisine is really meant to be, partly because the people serving it, whether they're hoteliers or private chefs, don't have the budget, mm -hmm. let alone the training, mm -hmm. to produce the kind of food involved. If you've ever tried cooking from a really top chef's cookbook, you need a brigade. Do you have a brigade? Because if you don't have one, it's not going to work. And I think what changed that, and let's 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 um, crudely call that um, a kind of culinary landscape characterised by um, old aristocratic traditions of yeah. game and so on, yeah. and then a kind of slightly more nouveau rich capitalist uh, tradition of, yeah. of uh, descended from Gauthier. Yeah. Um, what 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 erupted uh, and completely changed that scene was, I guess, the appearance of people like Elizabeth David. Yeah. And this takes me nicely on to the point that you make in your book, which which is is that, I mean, it's not so much a point, but you, you seem to uh, criticise Elizabeth David at certain no, points. Definitely. And, I, and I enjoy, I really enjoyed reading the criticism. I thought it was the spiciest parts of the book. <laughs> <laughs> but can you tell me what, what I mean, I, I have a sense, but can you tell me exactly why, what, what's your problem with the appearance of the people like Elizabeth David? My main short problem with Elizabeth David is that she's a high modernist. She's part of the Bloomsbury group. And I mean, I can love Virginia Woolf's novels anytime, and some of David's food writing is also beautiful. But we also have to ask, what were they trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And in David's case, what she was clearly trying to achieve was some kind of apocalyptically large distance between herself and England. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people respond to that enthusiastically. Fine. But then you can't also say that she's a brilliant English food writer. She kind of repented later in her life and produced some alternative books. I'm also just going to fault her scholarship and her recipe writing. How many people who really adore her have tried cooking from those books? Mm -hmm. She's always on at people for making small compromises, notwithstanding the fact that she knew rationing was in place. I mean, of course, it's well understood from mass observation that most of the elite managed to get around rationing mm -hmm. by, you know, swapping out pats of butter between themselves and handing on haunches to a venison to Freddy. Fine, if you you can get away with that, good for you. And you're not bothered about the fact that you're actually, you know, leaving other people in it. <clears throat> Mr. Churchill, who was one of the very worst offenders I uncovered. 
But for those of us who are actually stuck with reusing the dripping because it's the only fat available, mm -hmm. it's a bit rich, so to speak, to be told that it's disgusting to have to cook in the way that actually people did have to cook. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And the other thing is she does all the things that she says other people do that she says she doesn't do, like her recipe for coffee ice cream, which is definitely not the recipe that she's claiming that it is. She's deleted the vast number of eggs that a pre-World War cook would have included. I mean, it's quite common in recipe books in earlier periods to have 14 eggs in a batch of ice cream. They liked it to be really glutinous, but she doesn't use that number of eggs. Why? Because of rationing. So stop shouting at the rest of us, Elizabeth. <laughs> and, and my further thought is just an awful lot of the food writing she does is just depressing. It's just snobbish. She seems to have made no effort to find good English food. And whenever she writes about food in England, it's denigrating. I don't accept that there was no good food before she spoke. There were other food writers in, in the interwar period who were fantastic and really smart and thoughtful. So I hugely prefer Jane Grigson, who wrote it about the same time, but who did try to look for the positive, even though she's also a Francophile. Mm. It's funny because obviously English food just has this reputation, especially people from abroad. I'm, I'm currently mm. reading um, a book by Hajun Chang, who's an economist um, based at SOAS about um, food. And it's so instinctive, uh, you know, it almost writes itself the way he talks about English food as being just bad. When, when he first mm. came to this country, it was just bad, like overcooked, mm. tasteless, bland. When did and he so first come to the country? Just this asking would as have been in the 80s, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say... It's improved hugely in mm. the last 25 years. But a lot of people would put some of that improvement down to the import of European traditions, Italian food, French food, these kind of peasant culture. Uh, I'm making traditions. a face here and wondering whether that's really true. I mean, and whether if, they can provide evidence to support that contention. I mean, well, Elizabeth David would serve as, 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 as the tribune of, of this trend. And mm. the evidence would be all of the numerous um, restaurants that appeared in the kind of mid 80s. Um, places, um, cooks like Rowley Lee, uh, Jeremy Lee, um, Fergus Henderson, Margot Henderson, mm -hmm. these, these, these cooks are, are really working with, you know, giving us restaurants like St. John and stuff. These restaurants are, are really working with basically the kind of Elizabeth David School of Provincial European Cooking. I'm not sure I do agree about St. John, that we can discuss it further. I think probably Fergus Henderson might say that he was also going back to a school of cooking that was the norm once mm -hmm. for ordinary people, actually for middle class people in Victorian England, rather than going back to Elizabeth David and what the French were doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking of the whole concept of nose to tail eating, which is one of the things that prior to his advent, we'd lost sight of completely. And it's not really what David advocates either. There's a searing essay about her effort to prepare mincemeat and do something with suet, where she seems to go into a kind of moral panic at the idea of touching it. Um, actually, I think that by contrast, people in Lancashire at the turn of the 19th stroke 20th century knew perfectly well what to do with a sheep's head, for instance. And I doubt if you went to the region now whether anybody would, except possibly Simon Rogan. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of going to go instead with the idea that a lot of what I've seen, what I think's really improved in England isn't just the restaurants. What I think's hugely improved in the past 25 years is the infrastructure, the underpinning. Mm -hmm. So it's people doing 
artisanal bakeries. The fact that there's now a sourdough bakery in my local town, which there certainly wasn't when I moved to the area. The fact that you can, there's now an Oxford cheese shop that specialises in British cheese. The fact that there are British cheeses that are worth specialising in. Places like Hawksmoor, the steakhouse mm. chain, and the way they source their meat, but there's someone to source it from. That's what places like you know, Milano had that we didn't have mm-hmm. 30 years ago. Let's stick with sourdough. Um, there's a moment in your book in which you say, and I think this kind of gets the some of the the kind of core polemic, uh, the, the core argument of your book, in which you say our choice in bread um, indicates social class now yeah. as reliable as it did uh, in the 14th century. Absolutely right, yeah. And could you, could you tell me exactly how, how that is the case? Well, if you go to a medium sort of supermarket like Sainsbury's or Tesco's and compare the prices mm-hmm. of the different kinds of breads... I think we're kind of done here. <laughs> the fact that there's also a cadre of people who would dream of buying bread from any of those places, but will rush off instead to Harrods or something and pay £11 for a quarter loaf of pan poilane mm-hmm. is going to strike the vast majority of people eating a piece of toast for their breakfast as absolutely ridiculous. And fair enough, mm-hmm. because the content in terms of you know, nutritional values is going to be really pretty similar. Okay, to be sure, bread is a supermarket loss leader, like milk. They buy in the big sliced loaves at a knockdown price and they sell them for an even more knockdown price to drag you into the shop. Mm-hmm. Yes, they contain a lot of additives. Yes, they contain an awful lot of yeast. Yes, there is some correlation between increasing rates of glucose and yeast intolerance and um, gluten and yeast intolerance, sorry, um, and and the rise of the Chorleywood bread loaf. But really, it's not a health concern. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I like sourdough, but of course I do, um, and prefer it on the whole to white sliced supermarket bread. But that's something that's changed in my lifetime. White supermarket bread was what I ate in childhood because that was the posh bread when I was a kid. And then later, brown bread came in and then bread bread with actual visible whole grains in it, and that was what you ate. And and all these rules are actually just rules about status. People might tell themselves that they like sourdough better, but if you serve them a really yummy white muffin that's been freshly made, or better yet, a really yummy fresh brioche, they'll eat it. I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think, the, again, the core argument of the book is, is class um, has a lot to say when it comes to our taste. Um, but I, I would push back a bit against the idea that those who are buying sourdough are inherently middle class. Because I think, uh, you know, if you, many people in my generation, among my kind of social manure, might have, you know, precarious jobs and certainly little mm. access to getting on the housing ladder, but they might have a taste in expensive coffee and nice bread. And oh, definitely. Does- yeah, I definitely accept that. I do. But then class isn't just about money. I was making it sound as though it was, and that's wrong. Actually, Elizabeth David wasn't personally especially rich, though she was from a fairly posh background. Um, I think that 
there's something separate to be said about food actually as something where you you do with some planning and thought have access to the very highest stuff, even if you personally are not rich enough to eat it every day. Mm. And I think that's one of the values that you're speaking to. I mean, I've eaten in many three-star Michelin restaurants, though I'm not really as rich as their average punter. Um, and I mean, that's a pleasure. Yeah, and pleasure is is itself a great human good. Mm -hmm. If sourdough is where you want to put your money rather than the latest iPhone or and very upmarket Audi, then that's also fine. But you are partly partly buying cultural capital when you do it. But that would imply that bread isn't a good marker of class. Because I mean mm. I'm pushing back because you see you you hear this discourse often in the media. Um, saying that, oh, this person is, you know, a posh person because they're eating avocados on toast and so on and so on. Oh, don't, don't get me started on the avo on toast. Um, <laughs> yeah, which comes from Australia, my country of origin. So that's kind of fun too. Um, yeah, I mean, that's basically a way of beating up Gen Z normally and explaining that that's why they're not on the housing ladder, which is obviously complete rubbish. They're not on the housing ladder because housing prices have gone completely ballistic, uh -huh. partly due to quantitative easing. And we can talk some more about that if you like. But my general sense is, yeah, um, there are two things always with social class. There's raw money, and that's important, mm -hmm. and I don't want to wish materialism out of the conversation. But there's also the way that cultural capital is transmitted, which can sometimes even cut across income fractals. Mm -hmm. And for the middle classes... Can you say, sorry, sorry uh, for those who haven't studied sociology, what do you mean by cultural capital? Cultural capital is the uh, relative value of a work of culture, which might include a restaurant meal or a loaf of bread or a poem by William Shakespeare or a poem by Simon Armitage. So Armitid. like telling people you know or eat these things shows that you have some status. That's right, exactly. So... The fact that you read books from the Booker shortlist, the fact that you go to classical concerts and not the last night of the proms, mm -hmm. the fact that you see films with subtitles in foreign languages, all those things are at least partly things that are being done out of a sense that you're entitled to cultural capital because a lot of people don't feel entitled and so they shy away from them. Um, and also that you're hoping will burnish your cultural capital further. It, it doesn't mean you're not enjoying them. It doesn't mean there's not a degree of honesty in your engagement with them. But there is also a degree of extraneous value. Mm -hmm. And it works like the market in that Saudo now has a much higher cultural capital value than it did 50 years ago. Mm. No, that's good. I think we've we've got a good definition of class there. Good. Let's let's go back to the white slice white sliced loaf. However, um, there's another theme in um, your book which I think I would I would just bracket under the idea of like modernity. Right. And um, there's a point at which and uh, you say that some people fear nature. No, sorry. There's a point at which you say that some people fear technology mm. far more than they would fear something that appears to them to come from quote-unquote nature. That's right. Yeah. And this really spoke to me because I remember growing up as a kid, my mum uh, refused to buy anything that she suspected of having GMO ingredients mm. in. And she went. She was, she was part of an anti-GMO uh, genetically modified organisms, is it? Yeah. Um, uh, campaign. And she would, I remember she would go around the supermarket sticking labels on things like tomatoes being like, this contains GMOs. And so she embodies this completely. Mm. Um, 
I mean, could you say a little more about this tendency, kind of where it comes from, and maybe some of the kind of effects of it? Well, with all due respect to your mum, <laughs> who sounds absolutely lovely, and I wouldn't want to say anything bad about her, I would relate that initially to the urban myth of the rat in the Kentucky Fried Chicken. Part of eating food, consuming food, buying food now, is always going to involve putting ourselves in the hands of strangers. And as soon as we start thinking about that and recognising that that's what we've done, we immediately become uncomfortable with the idea, at least partly because we recognise that those strangers may be untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a lot about this in this book, but I, I wrote an article about pies and the horror of pies, that in Shakespeare's day, pies were where you dumped the meat that you'd literally found lying dead on the bank of the Thames. <laughs> or that was what people thought was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's an urban myth about people finding something odd in f- breaded fast food. It occasionally crops up even in the national newspapers to this day. Mm-hmm. So that sense that in your food is something bad and uncontrolled is is a normal aspect of being a food consumer. It occurs in every period in one form or another. There's the panic about alum in bread in the 19th century. There's the panic about what was called pertomane poisoning in early tinned food. There's moral panics about foie gras. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, we can work ourselves up massively to be hugely stressed about it. But what I'd say to your mum, with lots of love and respect, is that actually the tomato that's advertising itself as the vine-ripened imported tomato has also been bred for purpose. It's not identical to the tomatoes that were initially imported from the New World. And realistically, tomatoes are relatively recent in European food anyway. Um, It's a food that's been worked on by successive generations of breeders to make it more prolix in its fruiting and to make the fruit bigger and to make the fruit more capable of holding lots of water so that they weigh heavier in your supermarket basket. So even if it's not directly genetically modified in practice breeders have modified its genome. In a way, we can say there's no such thing as a natural food, really. Yeah, not anymore. Um, The the fact that one of the kind of unfun things is that um, most, we're actually in some danger of um, food shortages because so many of our varietals descend from a single parent. So, and the example I'd give here that everyone knows about is the potato blight. Um, And that happened because everybody was encouraged to depend on potatoes, the Irish in particular, because they don't have as much arable land and what arable land they have was being used for cash crops. And, I mean, then it only took a single fungal disease to destroy entire crops. Mm -hmm. That could actually happen again with a major food crop and most recently happened in the Americas with the maize crop. And since then, they've been able to diversify the genome for maize a bit by importing things from the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. But then as the world becomes less rich in natural reserves like that, the risk to us and to our food supply is going to increase. I think another consequence of this idea or this preference for, again, quote unquote, natural food is that some of the 
possible solutions to um, food shortages, um, to climate change will come from technology and may come from, for example, um, genetically modified meat or test tube, you know, I can't remember what's the Already term. Already on the menu in America, I gather. Exactly, yeah. yeah um, you know, fake fake meat. Um, and and there's, there's a sense in which, like, we're unwilling to accept that because it doesn't appear to us natural. But as you say, um, natural food is not really... It uh, doesn't really exist. Um, but well, it does, but but the thing is that natural foods now attracting a premium price. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm a massive cheese enthusiast and very picky about what cheese I eat. But the fact is that a quote natural cheese that's been cave aged in the Auvergne or something is going to cost you an awful lot more than a slice of ordinary supermarket cheddar or a slice of sort of rebarbative cheese straw that you pack in kids' lunches. Mm. So you seem to have an open mind to what I've just called, I guess, modern, modernist food yeah. um, or technology and food. Um, but you you seem to really dislike modernist cuisine. Completely different term. Can you tell me what modernist cuisine is and why you dislike it? Let's say that I don't dislike modernist cuisine so much as the cult of it. Yeah. Um, I dislike the idea that it's somehow better to spend three days. Can we start with a definition of modernist cuisine? Oh, okay. Um, Well, it's tricky to define because it doesn't really go with modernity. It's actually more recent than Mm. that. But it's, it's the application of a lot of elaborate technical expertise, including a full understanding of chemistry, to the creation of typically foods that were being created before without that body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a, a set of books about modernist bread, for instance, and they, they, it tells you in great, great detail what the standard recipe is for a baguette and then how using modernist chemicals and techniques and modernist equipment, you can get a slightly better result with... An, an overall spend of something in the region of twelve thousand pounds as a startup cost, um, yeah, that. And, and I'm not I'm not against it as such. I'm I suppose what I'm against, and maybe this is just a general thing. I'm against normalisation, whether Elizabeth David's doing it or Heston Blumenthal. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that there's a perfect way to do something that will work for everyone. And I just thought it was comical that this cook-off between a sensible, modest, domestic Delia Smith recipe and this modernist recipe that involved buying a whole extra chicken in order to somehow majestically add flavour to the original chicken um, led to the modernist losing. I just thought that was comic. And my bet is that there would be plenty of bread bakers, thinking of Justin Galatly's work, for instance, who could really pretty effortlessly take down somebody using yeah. a modernist sous vide method of maturing their starter. Yeah, so the kind of cooks we're talking about, Heston Blumenthal, you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, for what it's worth, I, I, I've i eaten twice at the Fat Duck and enjoyed it both times. But But I also think there's something problematically macho about this idea that you need this vast quantity of scientific equipment to make a meal. There's something incredibly gendered about it as well, right? Yeah, that's what I think I'm saying too. Yeah. Interestingly, virtually all modernist mothers seem to be male. Exactly, yeah. My partner, when observing this kind of culture once said, it's the kind of domain in which um, male bakers will call themselves bread scientists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, why? You know, why? <laughs> Be- because... 
I guess one of the things I dislike about it is the startup cost. I mean, if we're all going to have to buy a sous vide machine for mm. the kitchen and one of those, it's also going to be really wasteful because you have to have plastic bags to do it in and so the planet might not benefit. But I'm also just a bit bothered about the time spent because that's going to build in class and hierarchy. If you're literally saying that you can't have a good chicken dinner without taking three days off work, then realistically hardly anyone's going to have a good chicken dinner. And that takes takes me, I guess, to my final question, really, which is, um, I mean, at the core of your book, the kind of key claim that you're making is that class really does um, help determine taste, as we've already discussed. And I was left wondering, does that mean that for for a national food to be good food, whatever, however we might define that, does that mean we li- need to live in an affluent society? We do live in an affluent society. So, in a way, job done. <laughs> but you might further ask whether the increasing gap between rich and poor will end up being reflected in what food's available to the rich and the poor. And that's a really interesting question. Because, yeah, my sense is that one of the, the key differences between being a British baker and being a French baker is that we don't have as many laws about the price of bread as the French do since the revolution. So symbolically in France, a baguette is supposed to cost the same everywhere. I mean, in a way that feels like a constraint on French bakers, such that an American tourist, Stephen Kaplan, actually had to renovate the way baguettes were made and encourage the creation of the baguette à l'ancienne, baguette de tradition there, because those skills were being lost in the hectic rush to make at least a feasible profit on Mm. a baguette in that market. So perhaps eagerly absorbing those laws in an effort to help isn't going to work. And I'm also just thinking here of my pet peeve, which is the people who are constantly available, some of them are actually members of parliament, to advise the poor about food and to explain that they don't know anything about food. They always make me want to scream. I want them to read my book. I also want them to show me how they're going to make meals for a family of four on benefits. Mm -hmm. And this is where I dip my lid to Jack Munro as one of the only honest writers about food in that she actually does offer ways that you can cut costs. Most people don't because they've never thought about it. And most people go around supermarkets not really even thinking about whether they're racking up the purchases. Um, They just... And just the fact that most people will spend more money on a tin of tomatoes than the basic tin of tomatoes is an indicator mm. of, of just our plight. So my sense is, for what it's worth, we have an affluent society. We have a society where, for various reasons connected, I suspect, with the impossibility of the housing market, people are going to spend a, a higher percentage of their income on food. And that's one of the things that's fueling the improvement in British food and the improvement in tea and coffee. But I think what we also probably need to have is a society where those things are more openly valued Mm -hmm. and where the skills that people actually bring to just survival are valued as well, rather than denigrated by people with the power to make fruitful change. Brilliant, Diane. Um, That was an incredibly interesting conversation. Thank you. Well, Um, thank you for some intriguing questions. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. So Diane's book is available now. It's called English Food, A People's History, and it's out with William Collins. 